Jesus, I thank you that your spirit, your, your spurred, what's that? Your word speaks um, to us today. Uh, thank you that each time when we open uh, the Bible, you long to meet with us. And it's an invitation to uh, uncover more of the people you've called us to be and the God who you are. And so I pray that we uh, do that knowing that the Spirit's going to move amongst us. And that's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you are new to church um, this evening, we are in a series called Breaking Barriers, where we've been looking at the barriers that people have coming to faith, or the barriers that Christians have going deeper in their faith. Um, And we've done all sorts through um, looking at pain and suffering, looking at is the Bible really good? We've looked at um, is the Christian life really fullness of life? Um, We've looked at is there proof behind Jesus' resurrection? All kinds of things of which you can catch up on YouTube if you so wish. Um, But if you are new to church or you're not a Christian, you don't follow Jesus, then here's my invitation to you tonight. Just sit back and relax. Just enjoy the next 20, 25 minutes. Because I'm going to speak tonight specifically to the Christians in the room. So you get to kind of have a bit of a, uh, not a bird's eye view, like a a fly-on-the-wall experience tonight, where you get to look in at the inner workings of what Christians may be thinking about, and you can make a judgment whether or not you want to follow Jesus. Um, If you decide to follow Jesus, then this is a little glimpse into the inner workings, the inner life of a Christian. You may think that Christians are always lovely. You may think they're always kind. You might think they're always nice. And today we're going to look at a fundamental barrier that I think every Christian has in going deeper in their faith. I'm talking about every Christian's private and personal struggle with secret sin. Are we excited? Are we pumped? Now that word sin, it has a load of baggage that probably comes out of um, street corner preachers and those who would seek to use religion to oppress others. Romans 7.7 says this, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. So when people who don't follow God's way uh, mess up, they can't be put to blame according to God's law. And so for Christians, this is, this is a word for us. And if you're not a Christian, you don't follow Jesus, you can just sit back, get the popcorn out, and have a listen and relax and chill. Because sin is this like umbrella term that Christians use, specifically Christians, and the, and the Hebrew Bible, in describing the things that separate us from God and from one another. It's the stuff in our lives that creates a divide between us and God, and it is a problem. It's not just the stuff that we do, like the naughty stuff, the stuff that gets us time out on the naughty step of heaven, the behavior stuff. It's also hardwired into the way that we think, our worldviews in which we operate in, the systems and generational patterns that have led us further and further away from the original purposes that God has for his people. And today, we're not talking about the public stuff, the stuff that is very obvious, the the stuff that happens in our society that we can wave our finger up and say, aren't we living in a bad, bad world? Tonight, we're talking about the private stuff, the stuff that we hope that no one finds out, or especially no one that matters finds out. Are you ready? And again, if you're new to church, you can relax, grab the popcorn, and listen as those who follow Jesus are hoping that I don't mention the thing that they're struggling with. You can always feel the tension in the room, and I love it. Anyone else really like awkward moments? 
Like I try and generate them. When me and Laura started, um, when we first got married, any time I take it out for dinner, I'd propose again to try and get like a bit of drama or maybe a free pudding or that kind of thing. Like I love awkward moments. I love making them happen. I'm the kind of guy that goes into a gym and talks, whereas everyone else is like very, very quiet and head down. When I was on the tube, I used to sing just randomly just to try and generate a bit of noise in the tube carriages. Um, like if you've ever been in a London tube during rush hour, you're in people's armpits, and so I'd like have my face in someone's armpit and be and ask them, "How's your day been going?" Like I, I like I like that kind of thing. But secret sin, our private mess. Why does it matter? For starters, private sin, the stuff that we mess, the stuff that we mess up with privately, will always have a way of working itself out either explicitly, in terms of people will find out, people will know, and it'll hit up Facebook and talk about it or whatever, or implicitly, it will have repercussions and consequences that are a bit more um, subtle. When I was a youth worker, about, um, how old am I now, 35? Yeah, maybe about, uh, yeah, when I was about 20. Um, I was working for a guy called Chris. Chris was a lovely, lovely guy. And he was leading a youth group in northwest Harrow, in northwest London, sorry, a place called Harrow. And he was writing a load of books at the time. And he was kind of an international speaker, kind of going all over the place. And I used to get quite bitter because I'd be left back at the youth group doing the work while he was going to Israel to do something, and Turkey to do something, and then out of Mongolia or wherever to go and talk about his latest book and do a load of signings and all that stuff. And we used to get in a few like, heated debates when he'd come back and we'd chat about stuff. And there was this one time where I got super angry with him about something that I can't even remember what it was about. And um, so what I did is his publicist had made a Wikipedia page for him. And I did what you can do with Wikipedia is I edited it quite a lot, quite extensively. Um, and I just forgot about it. Two years later, his wife came up to me and said, Alex, something really bizarre has happened. Um, Chris's publicist said, come up to me and he said, um, do we know why his Wikipedia page says that he campaigns for the equality between red and grey squirrels, that he's a gold medalist in unicycling, and that he's been a lead vocalist of a Swedish death metal band? And I was like, I don't know. The thing is, is the stuff that we do quietly, the stuff that we do privately, will always have some kind of way of coming out. The book of Proverbs puts it this way, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes then we'll find compassion. In other words, keeping your mess a secret only leads to a hindering of all you are made to be and all you are made to achieve. Psalm 90 puts it this way, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. In other words, if we want to experience God's presence, it will illuminate the mess in our lives. Numbers 32, 23 you may be sure that your sin will find you out. I mean, that's harsh, isn't it? And some of us might be thinking, there's Alex, that's a load of Old Testament. We're New Testament people living on the covenant of the cross and the resurrection and the empty tomb. But in Matthew, Jesus says this, but I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words, you'll be acquitted and by your words, you'll be condemned. And Paul writes in the book of Romans, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. It's not about just what you say you do, but what you actually do do. I said do do. All the time. 
In 1 Timothy, Paul writes this, the sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. In other words, some of our mess is so obvious that people already judge me, we experience that in the now. But the sins of others trail behind them. And in the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. We can see throughout Scripture, the warnings are stark. If you think you can hide your mess or sweep it under the carpet, think it's fine because no one else is harmed, then you misunderstand what sin is and how powerful it really is. Now, you may be thinking, well, it's easy for you to say, Mr. Vicar, who's paid to be a Christian, paid to be holy, paid to be pure, you don't struggle with anything. And I'm afraid if that's your view, you're boldly misunderstood and you're probably in the wrong kind of church. Paul, who wrote a large chunk of the New Testament, called himself the chief of sinners. Like he was competitive with how much he saw himself being like the worst of all sinners. If we did a line right now from there to there, who sins the most to who sins the least? I wonder where you put yourself on that line. He would be like, I'm going out the building, I'm going down to Goose Poo Pond. What's that called? Green Bank Pond. It smells like Goose Poo in the summer, doesn't it? Always smells like Goose Poo. Goose Poo Pond. That's where he would be. He's like, no, I sin way more than anyone else. And he was also the one who says, I don't do what I want to do, and what I don't want to do, I end up doing. Does anyone relate to that a little bit? Just give me a little nod, a couple of nods. Brilliant. We're amongst the honest. The thing is, I struggle with this stuff as much as anyone else. I, a vicar, have lustful thoughts. When I'm tired and I'm stressed, I use people to make my life more comfortable. Sometimes I ignore the promptings of the Holy Spirit to chat to that person or to bless that person or to evangelize that person. The darker side of me loves to cleverly chat about other people so the attention is not on me, which the Bible calls gossip, right? I'm a pastor that is called to love and serve people and secretly I get compassion fatigue. I get worn out and my heart hardens and I get cold. There's a letter, 1 John, in the New Testament says, if we say we do not bear the guilt of sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. I struggle with secret sin, with personal mess, as much as the next person, but I fundamentally also believe this is probably a barrier that each one of us experiences and it's a barrier for us experiencing the more of God. And we as a church, if you're new to church today, we love to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit, the love and power of God at work in and through us, enabling us to pray for people to be healed and set free right here, right now. But we must not forget what the role of the Holy Spirit is. Jesus says in the book of John, very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. About righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So the role of the Holy Spirit isn't just to give us the warm and fuzzies in church, but to help us to live rightly righteousness. To remind us what sin is, the stuff that separates us from God, and to remind us of this final piece, judgment, which is a scary word, isn't it? Who loves the word judgment? Who's like, yes, give me more judgment, Lord. But yet, when it comes to judgment, here's the really, very, very good news of the gospel. 
When it comes to judgment, every sin, the sin you're currently committing, the sins you have committed, the sins you're going to commit, every sin is forgivable. Your mess is pardoned on the cross. The thing that separates you from God no longer has that power because the power died on the cross with Jesus. Jesus bore the sins of the world on that Good Friday, so no longer do you have to sacrifice a lamb, a goat, or a pigeon, but Jesus crossed the divide between God the Father and you. And the Bible and Christian history teaches us that Jesus even went to hell in your place, covered in the mess of the world, and three days later was risen by the power of God from the grave, so you nor I, if we believe, if we trust, if we follow Jesus, will have to suffer eternal separation from God. It's the good news. It should be vaguely exciting. It's the best news. The only thing is, is that whilst that's our eternal picture, our everyday reality, we're reminded of the presence of sin. Whether we turn on the telly or Instagram, or we just switch on our thoughts. We're bombarded with it. The Bible talks about sin, not as something passive, like an option that you choose, but it's something that's active. It's lurking, it's prowling, it's roaming, it's moving, it's crouching. It's something that pursues and ensnares. It's on the lookout for a weakness in every Christian to undermine the belief and trust in that eternal cosmic picture. Because every time you mess or up, up, every time you stumble, every time you trip up, you lose sight of that eternal picture that you are a forgiven son, forgiven daughter of God, set free by the cross and the empty grave. And like vines that start to be seemingly harmless, and vines as they grow and they grow, they gather more strength, their roots go down deep, and eventually have the whole power to bring entire buildings down to the ground. But there is hope. Because Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is our advocate. And in legal terms, that's one who speaks on your behalf. It draws alongside someone and represents them. And the only time you need an advocate in, in a court of law is when you're in a whole heap of trouble. And Jesus recognizes we are in a mess and we need help. We need someone to come alongside us, the work of the Holy Spirit, to tell us what is going on, to tell us how to live rightly, to tell us and remind us of that cosmic story. And so we're going to look at a story in the Bible of the, one of the biggest mess-ups and what we can learn to do with our mess. So 2 Samuel 11, you'll, you'll, you'll know this well. I'm going to read it in its entirety because I think it's important. It says this, In the spring... At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So sorry, there we go. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were and how, how, were, and how the war was going. 
Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all the master's servants did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why don't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How can I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will do no such thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So you remained in Jerusalem the next day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat amongst his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So when Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest offenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back into the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your, son, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. It's quite a visceral story of the mess of sin, isn't it? Like, for starters... The very first passage, the very first verse. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men. David, the king, was meant to be out at war. And yet he sent other people on his behalf. And I don't know about you, but sin often enters my life when I'm not taking my rightful place on the front line of mission when I'm not being the person that God has called me to be, or when I'm not taking up the assignment that God has given me, is often the times when sin enters my life. And there used to be an old um, advert for a mobile phone company, the devil makes work for idle thumbs. And you've got this at play here. David's bored. There's this kind of idea of him idling around the rooftop of his castle, just looking and gazing when his countrymen, when his fellow warriors are out there fighting, and he's just taking it back, bathing, and just checking out what is on offer. Neglecting what we are called to do often opens a gateway for those sinful patterns to start. And as he's idling around the roof of his castle... He's hardly at that moment the same David, if you remember, running into battle against Goliath with nothing but five stones and a slingshot. 
But then we have that picture of every sin, whether sexual or non-sexual, a moment of pleasure without any thought for the spiritual, physical, relational, or emotional consequences that goes on. And then we have a scrabbling, where he's trying to sort out his mess. He's, he says, oh, Uria comes back, and he's like, well, maybe I could get Uria to go home, have sex with his wife, and then they could claim this unborn child as their own problem solved. The problem is, Uria is a guy after God's own heart in that moment. He's someone who is acting with more nobility than the king, more honor than the king, more spiritual power than the king. He's saying, while the Ark of the Covenant and my, and my fellow warriors, my fellow countrymen are at battle, I'm not going to go home and be with my wife and, and, and accept all these pleasantries. And so David has this tussle. And, and often we read this story and we think, David just must have been this egotistical, egomaniacal guy with no conscience whatsoever until you read the book of Psalms. And while he's doing this, while he's messing up in quite an obvious way, he's also writing songs to the Lord about it. Psalm 32 says this, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. That silence of his sin. He says that it weighs on him. His bones wasted away through his groaning all day long. The mess we keep to ourselves, it weighs on us. Why? Not because of God, but because of us. Because we haven't cleaned up our mess. It's unresolved and it is painful. And the wedge that we drive between us and God cause an imbalance between the things we say about God and the things we experience about God. When we're struggling in some private mess of some kind and we're trying to talk to people about the goodness and grace and love of God, inside we have this split, we have this split mentality about the reality that we're experiencing and the thing we're currently saying. Another picture of sin that's super helpful is that of the Hebrew understanding of sin. Because for us in the West, everything is very personal and private. And in, in the Bible, there's no such thing as personal or private sin. In the same way, there's no such thing as personal or private salvation. What happens to you has an impact on one another. Allow me to demonstrate it this way. So imagine you go home and you're hungry or you're angry or you're lonely or you're tired. And you just do the thing that you always do in private. You might be clicking on that website. You might be looking in the mirror and believing something about you that's just not the truth. You might be talking about friends behind their backs it makes you feel a bit good about yourself. You might start to gamble some of that student finance. You might start to steal from the company that you work for. You might start to harbor unforgiveness towards that family member that you just can't deal with at all. You might start to treat people with disdain and not the love of God. And the thing is, is right there you might just think, well, it's just my stuff. How is that going to impact anyone else? I'm just doing that in private, doing that in quiet. But then I might say, well, I'm going to go for coffee with Rich. And Rich is going to come for coffee. And I'm like, hey, Rich, let's go for coffee. And we meet up. And the first thing we do is, oh, hey, Rich, it's so good to see you, bro. It's so good to see you. And then we chat. And for a while, things just start to leak out, leak out. And then I go, Jacob, can you come and teach me some drums? 
And Jacob comes, and we hang out a bit, and, and Jacob, I'm like, oh, brother, it's so good to see you. It's so good to see you. And the thing is, is my mess starts to leak out in subtle ways, in conversations, in the way I think about people, in the way I think about these two people, in the language I use about God, in the language I use about humanity, in the language I use about myself, it starts to leak out. And so as they go out from this place and they embrace others, that mess starts to spread and it becomes contagious. We give these guys a little round of applause. Can you help me to take this off? If you hold the black shirt. Thank you. Oh, oh my gosh. Is that my face? Yeah, it's just a little. Cheers. Our mess has a way of rubbing off on others in the way that we treat them, in the way we speak to them, in the way that we keep some part of ourselves secret. We limit our capacity to be led by the Spirit. We limit our belief that God is good. Sin is contagious. And we're given this real parallel in this story of David between David, who should be God's guy, God's guy on the throne, leading people towards goodness, leading people towards freedom, and this guy, Uriah, who's just a mere soldier, and yet acting with way more integrity and faithfulness than the king who is the leader of all Israel. This story tells us that no matter your station, sin will come for you. That there's no way of thinking, oh, well, I'm far too holy, I'm far too, I've graduated from that. Sin prowls, it pursues, and it ensnares. And lust is such an obvious picture of this, um, and it's why it's so, such a, um, an easy illustration of this. And in this day and age, it's certainly one of the most widespread secret sins people struggle with, even in the church. And it's important that if we're going to be a church that confronts this stuff on the road to health, then we need to talk about it. But one of the things I say to people, young and old, who say they have a problem with this stuff, is that one of the reasons it's such a large problem is because the odds are stacked against us. Now, for example, Hollywood. Anyone watched a film that's been made in Hollywood in the cinema or at home recently? Put your hand up. A few. So Hollywood has an annual net worth of $11.1 billion. Okay? It makes $11.1 billion every year. It's worth way more than that, but every year it makes $11.1 billion. Netflix. Who's watched something on Netflix recently? Wicked. Netflix is now worth $11.7 billion every year. So, the, the, so Netflix makes more annually than the entirety of Hollywood now. Nuts, isn't it? 11.7 billion a year. The pornography industry is worth between 15 and 97 billion dollars annually. Think about the investment in advertising, in algorithms, and clicks that something like Netflix or Hollywood use, whether it's on the bus shelters, whatever it is, driving you to use and consume their product. And that's some powerful tech and marketing. Now double, triple, or quadruple those efforts that are being used to ensnare people to get them hooked on porn. And as humans, we are created with an inherent drive towards sexual union, both for procreation and pleasure. And throughout the scriptures, God uses lust and sexual immorality to illustrate our unfaithfulness to him and our selfish preoccupation with our own desires. And as with all sin, we need to prayerfully explore the deeper roots of our sin, whether it's lust or anything else, in order to cooperate with God and what he wants to do in and through us. There are many reasons people get mixed up with this stuff. 
Do you primarily lust out of a fear of aging and death? Do you primarily lust out of loneliness or lack of emotional intimacy? Do we do it out of a feeling of powerlessness or a desire to possess another? Thing is, I was a bit weird in my upbringing. I didn't grow up watching porn at all. I was quite unique in that regard, but it was mainly because I grew up in a very poor household. We had no internet, we didn't have a, a household computer, and I had a very strict bedtime, and Countdown doesn't get that fruity. <laughs> but my first encounter with pornography, and this is how messed up it is, was as a 17-year-old um, a, a about to study a theology degree as a youth pastor using a computer that was purchased for me by my girlfriend's parents. And then the cycle began. And it began, and then I would mess up again, and then I'd go back to church, and be like, not again, this, not again this week, and then mess up again, and not again this week, and then I'd go back to church, and be like, no, no, it won't be this, it won't be this, it'll be different this week, no, 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 not this, and I'll start counting the days, and I'll be like, brilliant, I made 20 days, and, and, not, and then it'll mess up again, and again, and again, and again. And the cycle only broke when I was honest with a couple of mates, and said, this is what I'm dealing with, on a weekly, sometimes daily, sometimes hourly basis. This is the mess I have. And instead of the judgment or hatred or rejection that I feared, I heard a me too coming back at me. Like, oh, me too. Oh, I mess up with that stuff too. And we call this kind of thing accountability, holding each other to account for the things we've done wrong, keeping short accounts. And believe me when I say to you that every time you mess up and ask God for forgiveness, he will forgive you. Every sin, no matter what it is. He will forgive you every single time. But if you want the cycle to be broken, then it takes having two or three people who you can be honest with about your struggles. And I guarantee you, in this church, the response will be, oh, you struggle with that, then me too. You struggle with that thing, I've, I've got something even worse that I struggle with. Let's walk this bumpy road of faith together. Let's set a course not bound on our own perfection or restriction or restricted by our brokenness, but on Jesus' faithfulness. The thing is, porn or lust may not be your current struggle. It may be greed. And one writer that I was reading this week called greed, non-sexual lust. I like that as a definition. Because it's the desire to have what you can't have to fill a hole that should be filled with intimacy with God. And yet a quicker fix is a moment of endorphins or a hit of dopamine. That seems to fill, scratch the itch. For some of us, it might be what Christian tradition is called sloth. And I'm not talking about laziness, but the Greek word acedia, which means a spiritual listlessness, which basically means almost like a balloon that's been deflated. It's almost like saying, I want all the benefits the Christian life gives me without any of the struggle or work. And this sin is a neglect of the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are slothful when we neglect anything that God asks of us, when we don't do what needs to be done. Jonah showed us this when he refused to go to Nineveh. Moses showed us this when he resisted God's command to go and speak to Pharaoh. Peter showed this when he tried to talk Jesus out of submitting to his destiny of dying on the cross. The disciples were slothful, literally, when they fell asleep at the Garden of Gethsemane. I am slothful when I watch one more TV show, when I should read a book, or when I need to sleep a few extra minutes, when I promise myself that I'll get up and pray or exercise. Depending on the context and on your character, our own slothness can look like cowardice or idleness or apathy or discontentment or gullibility or stubbornness 
or unimaginativeness, or boredom, rigidity, restlessness, or complacency. Anyone struggle with any of those? Yeah, look around, look around. You're amongst friends. A priest and theologian, a guy called Oswald Chambers, says this, most of what we fallen humans do is motivated by fear of some sort. Fear of death, fear of exposure, fear of abandonment, and fear of pain. That all sin stems from the suspicion that God is ultimately not good. In other words, all sin originates in one sense from this deeper sense of fear. We sin because we fear that we cannot possibly trust God and his intended purposes for us. Despite all the evidence in the Bible and that which we have experienced, the form of our fear defines the sin that we use to avoid the object of that fear. Which is why in the Bible, fear in itself is a sin. Now I've been a Christian about four years, um, so I became a Christian when I was 17, about four years later, and I've been studying theology for two years at this point, and I was studying to be a Christian youth worker, working in a church, and I developed a secret drinking habit, and I don't mean like I'd have the odd tin when I got home, I would use all of my student loan, pretty much, to go on secret benders with non-Christian mates or on my own sometimes. Now the thing is, I struggle with imposter syndrome. I struggle with the idea that at some point someone more qualified, someone more anointed, someone more loved, more skilled is going to come out of the wings and say, oh, your job is now done, thank you very much, hand me the keys, see you later. And the thing is, is that when I develop any kind of secret sin, it's often to prove that fact, to prove that syndrome to myself as some kind of weird form of self-punishment. And two years into studying this degree, I became pretty good at hiding it. And one Saturday night, I'd been on a, a horrendous bender with a non-Christian mate of mine, and I got back uh, very early on the Sunday morning, and yet my alarm went off to send me to church that day. And I was wearing the same clothes that I'd worn the night before. My breath was still kicking, smelling like the things that I'd been drinking the night before. And I sat right on the back row of church, my hood up, and the first song started. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It was in that moment that I realized that God's grace is not a generic grace. It's not a grace for all of us because we happen to be human rather than aardvark. It's not a grace for all of us because we fall into the human population and he just happens to be good. But the grace of God is, is a specific, personal grace. If you're the only person on the planet, God the Father would send his son Jesus to die in your place, to bear your sin and rescue you from the penalty of sin so you may live freely. Messing up, of course you're going to do that. But realizing that your mess may be a platform for others to find liberty. And what is real about this church is there will be addicts among us. There'll be people in serious debt. There'll be people in relationship breakdowns. There'll be people who are losing their jobs. People who struggle with how to discipline their kids without getting angry. People who cut corners financially. People who think of their bodies in a way that isn't in line with what Scripture says about themselves. People who lie. People who cheat. People who steal. People who are hooked on porn. Hooked on impulse shopping. People who are hooked on gossip. And how do I know? Because we are human. We are broken. 
We are fragile. We are messed up humans. Broken, fragile, messed up, and yet. And yet God still thinks we are worth rescuing. We're worth pursuing. We are worth dying for. And so as your pastor, Christians in the room, we all have stuff. Let's find one or two others and get alongside them and say, me too. Let's pray, set up a WhatsApp, check in with each other regularly. Let's not waste time and pretend that everything is always fine. Let's follow Paul's example and take ownership and say, you know what, I sin and I sin a lot, but I, I need help and I need to pray for one another. I need, I need counsel on my side. I need, I need help as I go on this path to reconciliation or someone alongside me to say, you know what, you need some professional help around that thing. I'm going to walk with you as we go on that journey together. But even more urgently than setting up a WhatsApp group and having two or three friends that you're going to confess them sin to, even more urgently than that, We've got to remember God's grace. But you are not defined by the worst thing you have done or are doing, that you are a much-loved daughter, a much-loved son, made in his image, with the design and purpose to be Jesus' ambassador, filled with the spirit, the love and the peace and the power and presence of Christ to transform you from glory to glory as we submit to his lordship, as we submit to his reign, as we submit to his rule in our life, and when he lords, rules over us, then the things that ensnare us of this world will fail to satisfy. But it starts with a prayer, come Holy Spirit. Because the book of Corinthians says this, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So we need to pray, Lord, I need your spirit to fill me so Jesus can be my Lord. And today, you may have been one of those people who has a large, repetitive, obvious habit that is forcing you to be two types of people. The person you want people to see and the person you truly are when no one else is looking. But for others, you may be struggling with subtle, nuanced divisions in your life. You've probably justified these, oh, it's just who I am, it's part of my character, it's who I'm made to be, it's not so bad. And yet you know, because the Holy Spirit is living in you, that it isn't Christ-like. And it stops you from being the person God has made you to be. And it stops you from seeing others how God has made them to be. And so we all need to pray. We all need to ask God to fill us with the Holy Spirit again, to bring us to repentance and remind us of the grace that has set us free. So should we do it? Let's stand.